to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Ben Friedman, Policy Director at Defense Priorities. Ben, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Good to talk to you. You've just published a paper with Defense Priorities examining one of the most frequently cited rationales for perpetuating this or that U.S. military deployment and, and generally for maintaining an oversized military presence abroad. Whenever there's some kind of debate about it, advocates warn that if we withdraw It'll leave a strategic and economic vacuum for other states, particularly our great power rivals, to move in and fill and obtain some kind of meaningful security gains. Before we get to that thesis, though, um, I want to flesh out some of the presumptions behind your arguments. So first, it's evident in this paper, uh, but also much of your other work, that you believe that the circumstances of the modern world have altered international politics in some important ways, that the calculations that the empires of old made in pursuit of wealth and security don't apply for various reasons. And we'll come back to this concept, but you cite Carl Kaysen, for example, on why conquest doesn't pay like it used to. Uh, why do you think that? Uh, yeah, John Mueller wrote this book about the uh, obsolescence of war, and Carl Kaysen wrote a review essay about it in international security, where he sort of said he agreed with uh, Mueller about the uh, modern war, uh, interstate war at least, becoming uh, going extinct, becoming far less common. Uh, but he disagreed with Mueller about the cause. And Kazin thought that the uh, at least the big cause was that uh, conquest doesn't pay like it used to, and uh, or at least uh, the circumstances where it paid uh, had become fewer. And it, so the uh, the basic reason is that uh, wealth used to be uh, hundreds of years ago uh, more industrial, and uh, you had more. Uh, it was easier, at least, to convert uh, conquest into greater wealth and power because if you took over a lot of uh, production facilities in the parts of the world that had experienced the industrial revolution, which for a long time was Europe and Asia and, and uh, and here in North America, then you would um, be able to convert that, at least in theory, uh, into you know becoming a military juggernaut. You could basically you know administrate, tax uh, the industry uh, of the areas you took over, and uh, use it to fuel your uh, an even larger military uh, and become more threatening. So the the idea was that then, uh, in in that sense, territorial gains could be cumulative that you'd grow stronger. Uh, and uh, for various reasons, I think that, that we're, we're not totally out of that world. We still have production lines and things like that. And the possibility of cumulative growth, uh, cumulative power accretion through conquest still exists. But um, it's far harder, I think, for a few reasons. Uh, one is uh, that the uh, wealth now is created more through knowledge, software, code. Uh, if you think about conquering Silicon Valley, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You're, you you can't really conquer the minds of the software engineers and gather the intellectual property uh, through military might that you would need to kind of reap the wealth of all the tech companies out there. So uh, in, in the world is becoming, at least the Western uh, or wealthier parts of the world are becoming more like that. So it's harder to just conquer wealth and take it over. And I think that's an underappreciated cause of peace. Um, and Kazan, you know, talked about that a little bit, but he also just uh, 
talk more broadly about the the difficulties of uh, conquest, the difficulties of converting uh, the wealth that you conquer, even if it is sort of old school industrial power, into uh, usable military capability. And, and there are various reasons for that uh, beyond the, be, beyond economic, even, you know, one of them is just, uh, nationalism, which makes it harder. Uh, nationalism allows people to organize, uh, along national lines and resist conquest. It's nationalism isn't new, but it's arguably, uh, sort of easier to whip up these days in response or these days in a very broad sense over decades in response to another, uh, power trying to, trying to come in and, and run your country. Uh, and, uh, you could arguably, you know, even transportation technology could help people can just leave instead of staying there to be conquered. Uh, you know, so for example, if China tried to conquer Taiwan, which is, uh, certainly one of the likelier, uh, interstate war scenarios that are possible these days, um, the Taiwanese semiconductor facilities would be a big target, obviously. And there's a lot of concern about that, but it, it's also, possible that you know the people who work there would just flee uh and uh even if china did conquer it, it they would, might have a hard time getting the uh knowledge that exists in in the heads of the engineers who help make semiconductors to continue to be used in a way that's productive uh for china so you can see a lot of problems coming up so anyway um the the conquest is getting harder and uh and uh there's uh, various reasons for that, uh, but uh, it's it's a, a source of safety for uh, countries around the world, certainly the United States, and it's also a reason why uh, we don't have to worry so much about our enemies occupying territory, whether it's through vacuums we leave behind or something else. So there's probably a lot of reasons U.S. leaders haven't really come around to the idea that you know having lots of foreign outposts, for example. Uh, is not as useful as it used to be. You point to the so-called endowment effect um, as, as potentially one explanation. Can you explain that a bit? Yes. Uh, yeah. So the, there are a lot of reasons why I think, and I know you, uh, John, wrote a good paper about this a while back, but there's a lot of reasons why bases are are uh, overvalued. And uh, But there's a, a concept from uh, cognitive psychology called the endowment effect which uh, is basically uh, that you tend to overvalue things that you already possess versus things that you don't. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of analogies to pro sports where teams are historically uh, overly reluctant based on lots of analysis to trade players they have for future draft picks and things like that. Uh, And, uh, you know, we tend to want to hold on for sentimental value sometimes to, Things that we have, and to actually, you know, economic sense, value them more highly uh, than they would be valued on the market or of things we don't yet possess. So obviously, I think it's obvious that uh, if that is real uh, and it applies to foreign policy, then you know, when we have a base overseas, we might tend to sort of attach value to it that that uh, isn't that we wouldn't attach to the prospect of uh, getting a new base there. We sort of overvalue things because of the fact that we had them. And, you know, moving outside of the sort of uh, psychological elements of that, I mean, there's a, I think there's politics that cause us over time, you know, to be told stories about things we possess 
bases, about policies that we have, which are the alliances that bases often serve, that cause us, uh, for not psychological reasons, for just sort of informational reasons, to be wrong about how valuable things are to us. And, the, you know, the historical process of having a base, of having an alliance with a country that is serviced by a base, um, you know, you tend to get kind of overwrought arguments being made in favor of it and the and the arguments against it are, are less boisterous and, and uh, energetic because uh, it doesn't matter as much to all of us who, you know, pay a little more taxes or take a little more risk. Uh, because we have that base as opposed to the people who have very strong feelings about the alliance or whatever it is who tend to be uh, the loudest part of the policy conversation. You also point out that there can be, I mean, if we're pressed, we can come up with situations in which um, a rival state gaining influence or expanding into, say, a neighboring territory could uh, provide that rival state with some ability to undermine the national security of, of the other. But that logic sort of uh, ignores the overwhelming fact of U.S. security that we have basically friends and fish bordering us. Uh, you write that, uh, quote, U.S. security is so profound that almost any potential vacuums are immaterial. Can you elaborate on what factors constitute this profound security? Yeah. So the way I was thinking about it was look, there are these arguments uh, about uh, vacuums uh, that we need to fear leaving Syria, Afghanistan at the time, the Middle East in general. Uh, we need to fear doing less in, in, uh, in some sense in Africa and other parts of the developing world. And, uh, and I engage directly with those arguments and explain why they're wrong, but there's a kind of broader point underneath it, which is that uh, they're all kind of engaged in, you know, I think the arguments about vacuums, like the president of the United States made one about the Middle East. Uh, arguments about vacuums are underarticulated. You know, they're, they're not really good theories, like uh, with clear causal logic. They're uh, kind of folk theories that arguably are articulated largely by people who want things for other reasons and just view this as a nice rhetorical device. Uh, so I'm sort of filling in, you know, sometimes to, to shoot at theories like that, you kind of have to articulate them more. Uh, broadly than the people who make them, who believe them. But uh, arguments about vacuums, you know, sort of behind them, they have this kind of idea that territory in the places U.S. have uh, bases is essential uh, to our security and uh, and that uh, there must be some value in that dirt uh, that uh, is uh, going to attach to, you know, another great power. That's the argument. If we leave, uh, and uh, they'll use that power uh, to come after us. And, and so the, the broader point is that the, is that the United States, because of our geography, uh, which leaves us uh, uh, not a world away, but a couple of oceans away from most of the trouble that bothers us because of nuclear weapons, because of our military might, uh, we don't really have to worry about those for security reasons, about those precise, uh, sorry, about those uh small differences in the balance of power with, say, China or something. If, if we grant that China would gain, I don't think we should grant it, but if we grant that China would gain something from you know, having a few troops in Afghanistan or uh, operating uh, more uh, fulsomely in its foreign policy in Africa or uh, doing something more in, uh, in Saudi Arabia, 
uh, if we grant that they'd sort of gain some more influence there if we left, it really doesn't seem to make any difference to our safety and security in the United States because it, the sources of it are, as, as you quoted, uh, so profound that you know we don't have to worry about these little differences in the balance of power. And I, I should say that um, this essay is is sort of uh, a it owes a lot to this stuff that Stephen Van Ever wrote at the end of the Cold War, which was uh, provocatively titled uh, in part "Why the Third World Doesn't Matter." Uh, he had an essay about how you know the the bipolar competition between the United States uh, and the Soviet Union didn't need to go on in the in the third world. There wasn't enough there in terms of uh, power capabilities, stuff that could be used to threaten the other that we really needed to engage in competition. You know, so and that really had that you know advice been taken seriously in the Cold War, it would have been much less of a Cold War. You know, the Vietnam War, for example, we could have skipped the uh, you know a lot of the coups in, Ch- in Chile and places like that. Uh, we could have just said, well, that doesn't matter. You know, we, this is this is a conflict about the big industrial regions of the world, primarily Europe. And uh, the Cold War could have been a lot more mellow. So I think it's important now to say, look, we don't need to have whatever you think about great power competition with China. I think, John, like you, I'm a skeptic that we need to have a new Cold War with China or even that we need to have intense great power competition with China. But even if you do think that, uh, there's really good reasons to think it doesn't have to go on in the Middle East. It doesn't have to go on in the developing world. Uh, You know, we don't have to worry about China's up to something in Africa or Latin America uh, because of the the profound advantages that we have uh, in terms of our security, so that that's sort of the, the underlying thought of the paper. This will be a, a somewhat of a tangent because I know it's it's a question that you've worked on for a lot of your career. But if it's so clear that the United States is profoundly secure, why haven't decision makers understood and internalized this? Why are we so fearful despite our safe position? I think that uh, power generates insecurity. It's ironic. So uh, the you know it's an irony of great power that you think it would make you more secure, uh, and uh, instead, uh, I mean, it does. I think in an in a absolute sense, it makes you more secure, uh, having more power and more military capability and wealth. Uh, but it makes you think you're insecure, so it creates paranoia essentially. So uh, my argument is that one of, as a result of the United States being so powerful for so long, uh, we uh, taught ourselves. Uh, because of the need to kind of generate support for all our far-flung policies in the World War II and the Cold War, we taught ourselves an ideology that said we can only be in safe in the world if we're in some sense dominating it. And, uh, and we developed, for good reason, to sort of manage uh, our foreign policy, all these big bureaucracies uh, that are important to how we think about foreign policy and help kind of educate the American people into, into believing in this ideology. So it's sort of a, you know, my view of it is that you have a bunch of institutions, you can call it the military industrial complex or something like that, that are tied for rather material reasons to the continuation of these world spanning policies. And, uh, and they help kind of uh, create at least an elite 
in the United States that's very tied to an, this ideology that says, you know, we're we're very unsafe, at least unless we uh, are very active. We have a very active foreign policy, and, and there's a lot of effort goes into uh, teaching Americans that they're fundamentally insecure because uh, insecurity is tied to the you know the health and and uh, I guess ironically the security of the national security state. So looking at this question of vacuums and the prospect of U.S. withdrawal here, there you argue that. The most likely beneficiaries, generally speaking, would be local actors, not distant great powers, if we were to withdraw from this, that, or the other area. Why do you think that's a safe generalization? Yeah, so the way I look at it is, uh, if you if you want to get specific about these vacuums arguments, and uh, you, you know they're often made about places like where the United States, they're generally made, almost always made about places where the United States has some military presence. And uh, so to me, just about everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So then you can, and then, so as a result, you could also make it about, you know, the Middle East uh, as the president, as president Biden uh, did the summer. He said, if we get out of the Middle East, uh, we won't get out of the Middle East because we don't want to leave a vacuum for Russia, China, or Iran to fill. But, um, and my argument, basically it's sort of three parts. It's one uh, there's, in some, in a lot of cases, it's not going to be a, a vacuum. At least, it's not going to last very long. Uh, two, uh, if there is a vacuum, it doesn't matter to the United States. And uh, three, which is sort of another part, of, it's sort of another way of saying two is uh, that that the uh, foreign powers are not really interested in in coming in and trying to fill a vacuum. And if they were, they'd be dumb. So, uh, in some ways, we're we're have the exact opposite view that we should have. That if we want to hurt China or Russia, we shouldn't prevent them from trying to rush into our stead in the Middle East. We should invite them to fill vacuums that we leave behind in the Middle East so they can suffer as we have. But uh, anyway, the first the first part of that is uh, that failed states uh, or most places where the United States sends troops, if not necessarily failed states, are states that have big problems. And we send troops there largely because of conditions like civil wars and uh, a lot of domestic disorder. Uh, that's, you know, the, the kind of way the United States tends to use its military in the modern era. Uh, and, and so you look at Syria, uh, you know, we, we're there to fight ISIS primarily, but uh, ISIS was there, it's complicated, but largely because there was a civil war that allowed them to uh, become active. And, uh, we can tell a, a similar story about Iraq, where the United States has forces as, uh, as a result of domestic disorder. Iraq's a little better organized, certainly these days, than Syria uh, and uh, a lot of other U.S. military occupations. So um, the the argument is sort of like that, that if the United States leaves uh, Syria or another place where there's a civil war, where we have forces or had a civil war, uh, that... Uh, there'll be this vacuum. You know, everybody quotes Aristotle, nature abhors uh, a vacuum. But the, the, uh, my point is just, there's, there is a local government. And, and so failed states aren't, it's an overly, uh, it, it overstates the problem that, you know, even in failed states, and there was a Cato paper 
years ago by Jen uh, Keister about this, uh, that in, in failed states, uh, there, there's usually uh, some kind of local government. Uh, and uh, in that sense, they're not totally failed. And in Syria, even though there's you know still a civil war going on in a sense, uh, the Assad regime is in a good position to benefit from uh, the United States leaving. They're uh, aided by Iran and Russia, but they're they're likely to take over from an administrative standpoint the territory that the United States troops occupy in eastern Syria and in Afghanistan. Uh, we were warned that there would be a vacuum by some people that. Uh, that uh, somehow China or Russia would fill or some other powers, outside powers, if we left, if U.S. forces left. And what happened was U.S. forces left. And and I think there was a vacuum, but the Taliban uh, swiftly kind of assumed uh, all the power in the state. You know, so the local you could we could have a long argument. And we talked about this last time I was on about how you feel about, you know, the Taliban taking over in Afghanistan. But the point is for now that there wasn't really a vacuum and uh, at least not one that lasted. And if to the extent there was, the beneficiaries were local powers, uh, not, you know, other great powers that we have competition with. So, the, the you know, whatever, there's a lot of things to say about occupying Syria, but uh, the idea that our other great powers are going to take over if we leave aren't right. Uh, part of the thing that's tricky with this uh, is that uh, for people who essentially equate strategic dominance and extended military reach with security gains, like there's a presumption that us being there, wherever there is, is a net positive. If not for U.S. security, then collectively somehow. But the whole equation of vacuums being filled by rivals kind of melts away when you notice that actually this kind of expansionist interventionist military mindset doesn't improve us security or the state of the world it's not a strategic asset so if china moves into the middle east it won't be that good for china uh, just as it hasn't been very good for us Um, let me ask you what do people who believe in this vacuum idea think Russia or China filling it in would look like? What do they think they would actually do? Do they think they would mimic the United States and set up bases and have uh, mimic the set of relationships that we have? What do they think it will actually look like? Well, I, I think that this is an area where, as I mentioned before, I think the, the sort of advocates of vacuum fears are, are don't really articulate what exactly they're afraid of. So it's a little easier in Syria where, you know, you, uh, you actually have, uh, you know, a Russian presence. Um, and uh, so you could say, okay, the, you know, the, the Russians will have uh, greater access to the parts of Syria where the United States military is through the Assad regime. And, uh, and then the obvious question is, so what? I mean, you know, as I put it, Elsewhere, it's a civil war management opportunity for Russia. I mean, it's not, you know, it's really not a gift to Putin to say, oh, look, you're in charge of a a patch of uh, Syria that, you know, actually has very few people in it. Uh, And even, you know, the the well-populated parts of Syria are probably even more difficult and costly to occupy. So, uh, you know, occupational uh, duties... I don't think are uh, profitable from a national security standpoint or an economic standpoint. And, uh, you know, this is not a new idea. You know, the, the old school realists, you know, I mean, you know, George Kennan talking about 
containing the Soviet Union said that uh, the, their attempts to sort of expand their power into Europe were bound to be ultimately self-destructive uh, because trying to rule over an empire of peoples uh, is not going to go well. And some of that has to do with the problems of nationalism uh, that I talked about before. So the Chinese or the Russians uh, in attempting to kind of run places, if they were dumb enough, attempted to kind of run places that the United States has sort of attempted to run by having a troop presence would have all the same troubles, if not worse, because they have less experience doing it than we do. Uh, so uh, that that's the, I mean, that's the the main point there. I think, you know, there, there, you can also, I think, have a longer conversation about what it would mean for like China to take over for the United States in the Middle East, right? And uh, th- that's more complicated because I don't think many people think that China would just kind of try to emulate the basing structure the United States has in the Middle East. And if you read articles, like there was an article in the Financial Times today about Xi going to the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. If you read articles about it, it's, it, you know, the Financial Times is attempting to be specific about what exactly people are worried about. But it's kind of a melange of things about uh, oil prices and influence and uh, market access and weapon sales that I think don't really add up to much. So, uh, it's, it's, uh, really sometimes it's not even clear what people mean when they say there's going to be a vacuum left behind. Let's talk about choke points, the Strait of Hormuz, the Strait of Malacca, the Suez Canal, etc. cetera. Uh, why are these considered special and how do you figure them in your argument? So the, the the argument about territory is uh, in the in the paper is that there's a few different reasons uh, you might care about uh, territory, whether or not it's gifted to someone by a vacuum or if they just conquer it, and uh, one is uh, that uh, it has this cumulative. Uh, value, potential power gain capability uh, that we talked about already. Uh, Another one is uh, that they could use that territory to shut off trade. Uh, And uh, so that choke points to me fit into that, uh, that that if if there's uh, a vacuum or another state like China gains control of parts of the Middle East, they can they could potentially shut off uh, access to trade through a choke point. So uh, Straits of Malacca or something like that. And uh, there's a few things to say about that. The, the first is that it, it, that's not uh, a made up concern in, in the United States now uh, through our, what we call command of the commons that we, meaning that we dominate the uh, international seas with our Navy, or at least have the potential to dominate it because we could stop other people from accessing it. We are the threat to uh, choke points more than anyone else. And, uh, you know, we talk a lot in U.S. national security documents and so forth and speeches about how we're standing up for uh, global trade. And uh, one of the ironies of that, aside from all the sanctions we lay out that uh, disrupt trade, is uh, that our Navy kind of exists as a threat to trade. You know, it's it's there in theory to keep trade lanes open in the event of a war for uh, U.S., and U.S. allied trade, but it's also there to shut down potentially trade to people we don't like or go to war with. 
And certainly the Chinese uh, have to worry to some degree about being cut off uh, from uh, seaborne supplies, which they're very dependent on economically. Arguably, that's one of the reasons for the Belt and Road Initiative, the series of investments where they're uh, worried about getting cut off in the event of greater conflict with the United States and looking for alternatives. But, uh, you know, there's an old argument about straits uh, that says, therefore, you know, we need the ability to uh, clear them or keep them open. And uh, I think that's not totally wrong. Uh, and that's one of the things the United States Navy should be able to do. It doesn't mean we need to patrol constantly in peacetime, but we should have the capability to keep sea lanes open. But in a lot of cases, you can go around straits. And Eugene Galtz uh, talks about this in various publications, but uh, that, you know, the, the trade routes um, uh, that we're dependent on economically are sort of less brittle and more versatile than we're often told because you can buy supplies from another place. Uh, or like I already said, the, the shipments can, you can pay, you know, the price will go up a little, but you could go a different way, uh, through, you know, oceans are vast. And, uh, and so, uh, the, there are the, the choke point argument, that, you know, Straits of Malacca or the Suez Canal, um, that, you know, the global economy depends on them and therefore we're terrifically vulnerable to military disruptions of them is overstated. And, uh, you know, globalization of trade, you know, creating options and so forth creates, uh, makes choke points less important and is a source of security for us in that sense. I want to go back for a second to this question of nationalism. You talked about how that would be a problem, for example, for China, if it tried to obtain and conquer Taiwan, there would be lots of Taiwanese resistance to make it very costly for China. Um, um, but uh, ironically, it seems to me the only reason China might try to conquer Taiwan is for nationalism, right? Uh, if, if it were just doing a cost-benefit analysis, it might decide that's not for something we want to do, but its own nationalism about, about where its sovereignty is and is not might drive them to do something really extreme. And then, of course, you have Putin who made extreme decisions to go into Ukraine. Um, you know, it seems like some leaders are not listening to your, uh, your point about conquest not paying. Yes. Uh, and so, the yeah, I, I'm not making the argument uh, that war uh, between countries is extinct just that uh making i am making the argument which i taking from others including john mueller that the uh the declining uh benefits from a security or economic standpoint of conquest undercut reasons for war so i would expect there be less interstate war and i think this is a reason why we've had fewer interstate wars uh, because uh, of the declining benefits, not that everyone, in a sense, got the memo. Uh, so you can still have conquest uh, and you can still have security dilemmas because states are worried about uh, conquest and international security is still uh, anarchic and uh, the possibility of war still looms. Uh, but it has gotten more peaceful. And, and I think uh, the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine as Mueller, I think, has written about, uh, is in some ways the exception that proves the rule. I, I think you know the jury's still out on how what how it will ultimately go. 
uh, for Russia. But thus far, it certainly seems like it's not going to be an example that other states want to emulate, given the costs that have been imposed on them, uh, both by the Ukrainians with their resistance uh, and uh, the sanctions uh, that the West has put on Russia and the kind of long-term damage that they're likely to face. It's, it's, they're paying a lot for their nationalistic desire uh, to, to grab part of all of Ukraine. And, and the, 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 I think as you referred to uh, or referenced with in, in Taiwan, you know, one of the things about aggressive nationalism is it provokes aggressive nationalism, or at least it provokes nationalism, whether or not it's aggressive. So, uh, you know, by invading Ukraine, Russia gave steroids to Ukrainian nationalism. And, you know, we countries tend to define themselves in opposition to something. We are X because we're not Y, or even, you know, that's in-group, out-group theory. Uh, so, just groups of people in general. And, uh, you know, Ukrainian uh, nationalism was always has been present since before there was a Ukrainian state. But um, it was it was given a shot in the arm by being invaded by their their neighbor. And uh, I think the the idea of Ukrainian state will be stronger, if not forever, for a long time as a result of this invasion. So um, that, that, you know, just goes to the point that uh, conquest is difficult and uh, not not doesn't necessarily pay. So I don't know what Taiwan would do if China invaded them. I don't know uh, that their resistance would go well or how hard they would fight. Uh, but it certainly uh, seems a, a real possibility that, that the uh, – Chinese would encounter a lot of resistance. In fact, it, you know, the fact that they tried to conquer Taiwan would uh, boost Taiwanese uh, nationalism and make it more militarized and angry. Some people might hear your argument and respond by saying, you know, they don't expect China or Russia to move in militarily and all this talk about conquest is is not going to happen. But, you know, if we were to withdraw from this or that region, they could slyly use diplomacy or tradecraft to uh, gain influence or some advantage. What would you say to that? Yeah, I've been reading articles like that for, I think, maybe 15 years about the Chinese are up to something sly in uh, Africa or Latin America, but usually Africa. And uh, I mean, I'm thinking of something I read by Tom Ricks, and I think I wrote a blog post about it in maybe 2008 or nine that, that, you know, they're up to something sly in Africa and we don't know exactly what it is, but sooner or later we're going to find out and it's going to be bad. And a similar art, you know, logic kind of exists around the, uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which is, you know, China taking a lot of, you know, it's had this tremendous economic growth and they're taking a bunch of the money uh, they've gained in in, uh, in reserves, in investing it in infrastructure loans to countries. And yeah, there are questions about the terms of the loans and debt traps and stuff. But, you know, fundamentally what they're doing is, is uh, giving aid-related loans to countries in their area. And um, the position of the United States and the Biden administration is basically that uh, we need to copy that or we need to have our own uh, boosted infrastructure investment in the developing world to counter the Belt and Road Initiative. And, and the, um, it's funny because, you know, we 
already have that in a sense. It's called USAID. And uh, we also are, you know, the leading donor, I think, to the World Bank, which does similar things. So, you know, it's not like we're not doing any of that. But, uh, you know, there's this idea that we need to do exactly what China's doing or do something new because they're doing it. And um, it, it's, a, there's, it's just this murky logic that we have to kind of mirror image what we think the Chinese are up to. But the I mean, so the bottom line that comes out of this paper and my thinking about this is uh, there's just there's not anything from a security standpoint that we need to worry about in Africa. If the Chinese want to invest in mines and really it's Chinese companies, right? Not usually I don't know what exactly their relationship is to the state, but I don't think these are like decisions being made by Xi all the time. I think it's, you know, a bunch of different decisions by Chinese uh, merchants and different companies. They're investing in mines and, you know, energy uh, related ventures in Africa and other parts of the world. And uh, if you think that's a problem economically, okay, but that doesn't mean the United States military or the United States uh, national security uh, entities need to do something about it. It's an investment problem. You know, we, we should be chasing after the same investments, I guess. But, um, you know, so Chinese investments in Africa, there's a lot to say about them. You could argue about how good they are for people in the places they're investing, if the sort of, uh, you know, abusive labor practices are a problem, as opposed to the, just the fact that they're investing, which is good, presumably, uh, from almost everyone's standpoint. Um, you could argue about that, but uh, my point is just there's not there's no security thing that we need to be worried about. So calm down. What does your argument suggest about what overall U.S. military posture should be? Would the U.S. lose anything of value or undermine its security by retrenching and quote you know leaving vacuums, so to speak, in Europe, the Middle East, Africa, or whatever region? Yeah, I mean, I so I think as our conversation has. Uh, revealed, you know, this paper about vacuums, it's explicitly about vacuums, but in, in talking about vacuums, it's really about just what is territory overseas matter to us and when does it matter to us? So it's, I don't know, maybe I'm burying the lead, but it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, like a, a sneaky way of making a broader point. And the, the, uh, and my bottom line is it matters way less than we think. And, uh, so it's it's of course one implication is that we need uh, we could do with fewer overseas uh, bases, but I think you know the the implications are even bigger than that, uh, and I'm not the only one who says this, but you know that we don't need to worry about or if we don't need to worry about our enemies controlling all this territory around the world. Um, we could have a fundamentally different foreign policy, a more certainly more restrained one. Uh, more, uh, more peaceful and quiet, and uh, you know where you're less likely to find uh, U.S. military forces in your neighborhood if you're in the Middle East or other parts of the of the world, particularly the developing world. And um, that doesn't mean that we don't have a foreign policy or that we're isolationists or something like that. It just means um, that the security reasons for having an expansion area or a big uh, globe-trotting foreign policy are uh, overstated. And so, you know, you might still care about the places where the United States has forces and you might still uh, want various things from those countries, but uh, that you don't need to worry so much about you know, uh, somebody else showing up there and, and using the local resources to come get us. Benjamin Friedman, thank you very much for joining us today. 
All right. Thanks, John. It was a good conversation. I hope it was cogent.